And welcome back to the Rhizocast this week. Thank you for tuning in, and we're excited to be sitting with you. I'm Sue Hunt, your host, and you can find my work at suehunt.com. You can tune in to the collaborative community of artists, Rhizo Magazine, at rhizomagazine.com. We're a community that shares inspiring work, realizations, writing, poetry, practices around art, environmental justice perspectives, astrology, spirituality, movement, recipes, all things rhizomorphic in the human consciousness. Sharing beauty as well as the deep process of being human without labels and beyond binaries. Okay, let's get right into this week's episode. Be sure to check out Rizo at rizomagazine.com. Here we go. Hey, it's Sue here, and welcome back to the Rizo cast this week. It is a solo episode with me on being an empath, intuitive, and highly sensitive person, and ways to cope with that out in the world. And I started thinking a little bit about this, I would say two or three weeks ago, because I met someone for coffee, a mutual friend, someone that I've never met before, and doesn't know much about the work that I do, really just the book title of my first book. And he said, so what do you do? And I responded with, after sort of stumbling over a few things, um, I hear things other people don't hear, and I communicate that in sessions. And of course, I use the language of astrology. And it made me start also contemplating this transition into Virgo season, which is one of my favorite seasons of the year as a Virgo ascendant. So it's a mutable sign, a mutable earth sign that's very connected to reality, but also has the ability to shapeshift and match other people's emotions for better or for worse. Also inside the Zodiac, Virgo is this inward pull represented by the hermit in the tarot, and also this sense of um, self-realization, self-evaluation, self-worth, and self-trust. So we come out of Leo season, which is very extroverted in its heart-centered, courageous nature, and really absorbs energy from being social and in many environments as an extrovert generally. Um, Leo season is actually one of my least favorite seasons, obviously, because I am a Virgo rising, but I'm also a 2-5 in human design. So I'm the reluctant hero or the hermited heroine with a big mission of service. I also love the juxtaposition of Virgo because it's on the Pisces-Virgo polarity axis. So a lot of access to the unseen, the unsaid, the compassionate seas of Pisces. That is the 12th house. That is deep spiritual transformation. And Virgo is really the entrance into self. So you can see the polarity, but also the connection there between deep self soul connection, spirit connection through the lens of self, and then the polarity being, you know, dropping the lens of self and being in contact with universal flow, which is really the Pisces energy. So I am going to do a Virgo astrology podcast for Virgo season, but I thought that this would be a great place to start. 
considering many of you were interested in this particular conversation around being an empath, intuitive, and highly sensitive person. So honestly, I'm just sitting here drinking my coffee with shilajit and cordyceps and turmeric, oat milk, my little puppy sitting beside me. I have a few notes and I figured I would just talk into the ethers and see what comes back. So the word empath has gotten super trendy, I would say, in the last decade. And I think it's also confused with actions of codependency or a lack of an ability to confront our own idea of loneliness and what that feels like in the central nervous system. In Transitory Nature, Chapter 1 is breaking the private-public binary, which I think was very important for me to write that as the first chapter, especially being a 2-5, and then my sun sign as a Cancer, and my moon sign as a Pisces, with a lot of other water in my chart. I think that those things really push me towards the private end of the binary, and that it's been my work to be in public as much as I can without making myself sick. (laughs) So the word empath has, it's like, oh, I'm an empath and I'm so spiritual and I can really feel you, you know, due to my empath nature. And I just really wanted to start with, it's actually a very difficult seat to be in today's status quo. And yes, it seems interesting and shiny inside the spiritual world because it does give you incredible gifts and incredible access to leading others through transformation because you can really be where they are, not just in your mind, but in your entire auric field. And so it does have its ups in certain ways, but in day-to-day life, it really has some downs. So I thought I would be very transparent in this podcast and just talk first about all the ways I didn't realize this was going on when I was younger. So from a young age, I've sort of been the peacekeeper of my nuclear family unit. And it really wasn't until my mid-20s that I started working on that, that I was going to stop being the peacekeeper in my family unit. There's a sense of intimacy that people feel towards empaths, and they open their emotional heart. And sometimes they don't even really know why they're opening their emotional heart. Could be someone you know very well, or it could be someone you don't know very well. Right, so people always coming to me with deep emotional issues, almost to the point that I couldn't avoid it, right? And I often say now to my husband when I'm just in a social environment, because my container for this type of work is called Connect to Spirit, where I have to remind myself constantly that even when I'm out in public, that I'm not in a Connect to Spirit session and that I really have to close my emotional heart in a very specific way in my auric field so that I'm not available for those kinds of conversations 24-7. And that's been really a 36-year practice. So I think the unique thing, especially about being a Cancer Pisces and a 2-5, is that, and I have Mercury and Leo, that I, I love to be heard for sure. Like I love to teach, I love to lecture, especially on important things that have really shaped my own worldview. But that doesn't mean I'm extroverted. So when I used to own my yoga studios, they about killed me. (laughs) No joke. I was super thin, could barely keep weight on. My eating disorder was really at an all-time high. Um, My, like, sort of 
the the de- the lower vibrating parts of Virgo, my micromanagey energy was very high. You know, I was in public 24-7. So every time I went to work, it was never solo. I always had, you know, a bunch of teachers in and out of the studio, managers I was collaborating with on a regular basis, landlords, people at the bank, and then all the students coming in and out the door 24-7. Hundreds of students coming in and out the door at all three locations for three years straight. And honestly, it about ran me into the ground. But at that time, right, that looked like the shiniest occupation for a yoga teacher, right, to own multiple studios, to have a homegrown chain, and to be teaching constantly. And I got into the sort of the group teaching because I had been in hospitals for about two years, but that was all one-on-one work. And in hindsight, I noticed what a big shift during it. Not so much, you know, I would leave the studio with gas, I would feel super sick, I would often drink too much or do too many uppers because I needed to sort of numb the fact that I wasn't really in contact with myself anymore. I was always mutating from every person's energetic field to energetic field. The upside of that is that it made me an incredible yoga teacher Right. Sometimes I wouldn't even have to say any words. It would just be an adjustment or a question or a look or a deep ability to connect through metaphor, which is this way to open the student's mind so that it's more in the poetry space and less in the analytical space. Right. And many people were flocking to class for those reasons, to get out of their analytical mind and deep into their embodiment and to do that in sort of this beautiful ceremonial poetry type of way. And so that was definitely its skill in public, being an empath or a highly sensitive person or an intuitive. They're not the same, although I I am all three and they do cross over with one another in certain ways. So over time, I think, you know, I had to learn how to deal with my empath tendencies so that I could stay in contact with my own creative spark, my own needs, my own wants, and my own desires. Because as an empath, you're deeply feeling the raw emotional experience, even if the person isn't telling you in language function what their raw emotional experience is, you're feeling it. And then with time, you can practice how to put that into words. This was also very, very important for me in the long run was that I realized that I do not have to say all of those things out loud, nor should I say all of those things out loud. It is not my responsibility. It can be quite violent to say some of those things out loud. And it can be quite invasive to say some of those things out loud that you hear that other people are feeling, but they might not be totally conscious of. Or given the context, it might not be an appropriate moment to do that. So that was also tricky to adjust, right? Because in the New Age spiritual world, there's all of this chatter about speak your truth, say what's on your mind, say it clearly, say it directly. And I really had to learn how to differentiate between my mind, my thoughts, my own meta dialogue, and then messages, information, sensory data self-sensory data that was coming through the field that actually had nothing to do with my cognitive function. Of course, my cognitive function is listening to it and then turning it into language, but I had to get to know my own personal voice so well that I could understand when something else dropped in that was not my personal meta.
And over time, this is something I honed with Connect to Spirit, right where I can see people I don't know all over the globe, never met them. The only thing I know is their birthday and immediately say, you know, there's a preteen entering the space. They're very scared. You're going to have to deal with them. Da, 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 da. Right. Something along those lines where I can really hear something that's not a part of my meta. And that's due to empathy. Right. That's not just empathy standing in front of someone when you can sense their body language and you're really being empathetic. Right. Being an empath, I think, is one step larger than that when you're hearing things in the field. So um, I'm clairsentient and claircognizant, which means I hear and see. So oftentimes I don't turn my camera on on Connect to Spirit and I will just be with my eyes closed or looking at your chart back and forth, differentiating between my voice, my opinion, which often isn't necessary to share, and then things I'm hearing in the meta that are not part of my personal voice. So you can imagine as a 21-year-old, right, graduating college, you know, those environments were very challenging for me, for all of my 20-year-old friends to be partying and going out, like going to a party or a social event is honestly my worst nightmare. And I think that's difficult for people to understand because sometimes I'll seem aloof or not connected or not appreciative. And honestly, it's because I just don't function well in big groups, right? Anything larger than two or three people starts to get a bit overwhelming for my central nervous system. So obviously, in a myriad of ways, in my early 20s, I really learned how to numb that so I could just fit in, in any sense. But I often remember telling myself, even in high school, like, why can't I just be normal, air quotes? Like, why doesn't this feel fun for me? Everyone else is like throwing their head back and cackle laughing and enjoying themselves. And I'm overstimulated to the max. And that usually gets me into trouble in the long run in terms of choices because I lose contact with myself. And then I'm in the ebbs and flows with, you know, society and status quo around me. So this is actually like a health choice. I think if you're an empath or a highly sensitive person or an intuitive, it's actually a self-respecting health choice to understand how to communicate that level of need that you can't be that overstimulated. And that's tricky sometimes because I get a lot of, because I am in public, right? I do this podcast. I'm doing sessions all the time. I wrote a book. I can, I plan to write another, right? And that's definitely motivated by the two five of my human design. And that I think that there's a larger current of service that I would like to be connected to in terms of transformation, self-resilience, and also teaching these skills to other people. And I think that they're very, very learnable over time, right? How to create deep connection beyond language function and beyond just our sort of projected social identity. So a highly sensitive person is very is overstimulated very quickly, sensitive to light, sound, um, and all sensory data. And I think that meditation, simple meditation. So when I first started practicing yoga, it was Ashtanga. And then after that, it was Vinyasa. And then I got really into five rhythms. And I have so much fun because I'm a was an elite level gymnast as a child. So embodiment and moving my body is a big part of how I feel connected to myself and back into the boundaries of my skin. 
But over time, as my practice deepened, right, I got into mantra, into kundalini kriyas, and zazen, which was really my foundational practice over the last 15 years. And it's, of course, it's not fun at first as a new practitioner, but I found that any type of stimulation, as I became even more sensitive, was pulling me away from deeply connecting to my own metta because there was still a distraction, there was still a practice to funnel the analytical mind. You know, concentration meditation or imagery meditation doesn't really work for me. The one thing that I found was amazing was three to 11 minute kriyas to clear my field of other people's energy, other people's emotions, other people's projections, other people's ideas. And just, you know, being in a role of service where Sometimes in session, people say things to me they've never said to anyone else on the planet. You know, maybe they've only uttered them quietly in their own mind. There is um, a weight and a responsibility where I have to be crystal clear and as clear as possible when I step into those spaces. So there is no projection from me onto the other person. And Zazen, which is just silent sitting in the Zen Buddhist tradition, is the most beneficial for me because then I can hear all these currents of dialogue and understand which is mine and which isn't mine. And that really gives me access to listen to the unspoken, right? So the unspoken things in my field and the unspoken things in other fields. It also allows me to tap into someone else's auric field before they even get in session and sometimes I even have to be very careful, actually, that, you know, maybe I'm having like a dinner date with a good friend or I'm seeing someone the next day or, you know, I tell Dan or I ask Dan like, oh, how's our friend doing? And then within five to 10 minutes, that person texts or reaches out or sends an email or something along those lines. So it doesn't have to just be someone I agreed to enter session with. I think empath gives you access to the time space continuum so you can actually hear things before they happen and hear things as they integrate so zazen is also a touch touchstone point where i can take these sort of mental notes in my own <laughs> iCloud, right my own identity cloud you know i sort of put it up here on the left side of my head i'm holding my hand up right now to to demonstrate in my embodiment where it sits but I can definitely take these little bullet notes of like, yes, reach out to that person, send a quick email. They're entering the space. They're entering the space. Oh, that person is too much for me today. I can't touch that until the next day, right? Really being able to listen in this huge scope and to not deny that, right? There's, I was just talking on session with other, the other day with one of my year longs, there is a difference between meta-attention and then the actual actions you take. Those two parts of reality are happening simultaneously. And so the meta-attention is its suspended judgment. It literally is an observation mechanism. And that's what can take those notes and you can just leave them up there. You know, again, my left hand is up right to the left side of my ear. I can just leave them up there over time. That also really helped me in the book writing process. So again, this is something you can practice. So I do this in a lot of my Connect to Spirit containers, but I teach people how to take audio notes so that they can be in deep contact with their own emotional reflection and inflection. And then that 
can be recognized inside the meta attention. That's me. That's someone else. That's me. That's someone else. That's me. That's someone else. So you can really cultivate this skill over time, especially through listening to the emotionality of your own voice and then how to suspend it in your own meta. Okay. So, you know, I think it's easy to call ourselves an empath inside commercial spirituality. I think it's very difficult to actually live with that understanding of self, right? Things that are important to pick up on in your own embodiment that might show you that you're really absorbing other people's emotions. Very clear here, though. There's a big distinction between our own anxieties, our own fears, and then actually picking up on other people's emotions, other people's anxieties, other people's fears. So if we don't, again, Virgo season, if we don't have deep self-reflection and self-devotion, sometimes we get those two things mixed up. And that can be a very violent projection on our partners, our family, our pets, our plants, our clients, right? And you can continue to extrapolate. So when I was uh, living in Port-au-Prince, Haiti for a period of time, you know, I was a really into Reiki and I was also a Reiki practitioner and I was doing that quite a bit when I lived in New York City on cancer patients and one day in Haiti, right, so you can imagine out of your total context, we had driven two hours, it's a really intense country, I'm not going to touch the politics of it right now in this so I just pause not going to touch the politics of it right now in this episode. And we were working with cerebral palsy patients. And I think we had been there for six to eight hours. And I had been raking all day long. And when we got out of the environment, we got in the car, we drove back to the hospital and the tent camp that we were staying in. I literally had a seizure, right, and had to get medical treatment to the point that, you know, my auric field was starting to like cramp up in the way of the bodies that I had been working with for the last six hours. And this was a very scary moment, right? Because your meta attention is happening. It was a it was a huge teaching moment for me. You know, honestly, it kind of looked like I was an ayahuasca ceremony. First, my body started to cramp, and then it was just this intensity, like explosion of energy as my body was starting to cramp and contort in my face. And I actually still get that slightly today if I notice that I have a huge emotional outpouring and I haven't really grounded my body to deal with it or grounded my diet to deal with it. And it was really scary. But the thing that was amazing was that my meta attention was watching the whole thing happen. At this point, I'd been a Zen practitioner for a while. So this constant conversation with myself, you know, relax the tendon between the pointer finger and the thumb, relax the corner of the eye, take the tongue from the roof of the mouth, so take the tongue from the roof of the mouth. Like this conversation was going on, even though my body was just curling up with convulsions after having taken on so much of that energy. Right, I think I was maybe 24 at this point. Um, that's just one example. You know, I think that if you look back through your life and it's and you can separate between, okay, was this my anxiety and my fear that was causing this embodiment response? Or am I actually feeling this from the larger field? And here I am responding to it in a way that's over the top empathetic, right? How do I actually draw an energetic boundary? 
And one thing I learned over time in my own body-mind relationship is I don't really call it a boundary anymore because that word is so overused and just blown out almost. It's definitely a prerequisite where you have to hold this level of prerequisite in your external field of please talk to me, please don't talk to me. I need a moment, don't approach, right? And you don't even have to necessarily say these things. Maybe you do at first, you know, but then you have to understand your responsibility as an empath. That door doesn't always have to be open. It only really needs to be open when you want to be of deep service. And that doesn't have to always be in a client container, right? Sometimes that can be to a family member or one of my parents or my partner or a friend, right? If you ask, hey, I'd really love to share with you some things I'm hearing. Are you open to that? Oh, you know, we've been here before. I'd love to go into an intimate space with you. Can I share some things? Can I share some things I observe? Are you open to it? Sometimes you don't even have to ask that. Sometimes you can really understand when that door of intimacy is open because this is a whole nother level of intimacy to be deep in someone's auric field and detached from your own. Another thing I learned is that I really have to practice myself before I go in to teach. Um, and I'm debating right this weekend. I'm teaching in public for the first time in a couple of years since the pandemic. And I'm like, should I take that person's class before my class or will I be too much in their energetic current that I won't actually be able to stand on my own two feet with clarity in my own meta? So being able to practice or just a quick three-minute meditation before I get on session with someone so that I'm really in contact with how I sound before I open myself to their auric field and the spiritual circuitry of how they're moving energy. So obviously you can see, right, your central nervous system, your self-sensory system, it's this sort of ocean that expands beyond you and it's motivated by the movement of your central nervous system. So little tells that I also do, and I used to teach this all the time when I taught Austin in public, however, not doing that so much anymore, is closing the eyes and feeling the pupil underneath the eyelid. I actually learned that from Richard Freeman, amazing Ashtanga teacher, is a direct reflection of the activity of your central nervous system. So it's kind of like the white ball over the words in those old school cartoons you know how quickly is the central nervous system moving and responding to stimulus and sometimes quick isn't beneficial especially when you're allowing other space in your personal auric field to hear things coming through the meta that is from someone else's auric field so there has to be like a slow response time there almost to self not a slow response time to things you're hearing around you and so how to understand the central nervous system state to get into that slow response time to self and a quick response time to things you're hearing in the space around you. This is sort of a skill to harness your empathy and your intuition that is slightly esoteric. But once you start practicing it, you're like, whoa. <laughs> okay, this is for real now. I can actually turn, I always say this to students, and when I used to teach in public more often, you know, out of the one-on-one -on -one space, turn the volume knob down on yourself and turn the volume knob up on the rest of the world. Or turn the volume knob down on the rest of the world and turn the volume knob up on yourself. 
Does that mean that you can't hear both at the same time? No, it's just that there's a distinct conscious tuning in to one or the other. This also will help the central nervous system adjust. So when I get off a full day of sessions, you know, of course, my human body is honestly, it's screaming. It's going, hey, let's have a glass of wine. Hey, let's eat a piece of cake. Hey, let's go on a really long run. Hey, let's do something. Let's jump rope outside. You know, it, it wants to get back in contact with itself. So it will lean towards sort of self-abusive ac- activities. It'll ask for that, you know, a, a really long workout where I'm overworking out and taxing my adrenals after the day or reaching for something that is going to make me snap back into my own central nervous system, but have long-term sort of negative effects. So I'm super careful with those types of messages because I understand their purpose. It isn't that they're bad. I understand their purpose, right? It's my humanness going, come back here. We've really missed you. And so, you know, this is a little hack that I often share with lots of people, especially yoga teachers or empaths or intuitives or therapists or social workers, right? Where they're really, or nurses, right? These are all people that enter the connected spirit space is how to tell your partner or your family or your kids, I'm going to be home at 530, but actually park the car down the road, take 10 minutes and make sure you're out of that reactivity to everyone else. Right When I say turn up the speed on the way that we respond to other people's emotions entering the field, that's great when we're in service. Not so great when we just need to be social and loving in our regular life. And this took me a bit, right? (laughs) It took me a bit also to contain my personal response and to learn when to stop talking about, you know, sessions or people that I've been in session with in my own mind so that there's a sense of privacy there and a deep sense of respect and containment in my own field and that how to actually put that down and stop responding to the meta that's coming in and being very available for my own central nervous system. So taking the time for me, it's usually legs up the wall (coughs) and I give myself that 15 minute moment before I, you know, sort of walk out of my office so that I can be in contact with Sue so that when I go into a family dinner or, you know, dinner with my partner, that I'm not the seven different people I chatted with that day. Of course, it's not perfect all the time, but I think if you can get it to about 80% where you're really getting back in contact with yourself as an empath is very important. So time and silence, proper dietary choices, um, with so much water in my chart, you know, depressants just really don't work for me. And I've always gone back and forth, like, why can't I just be normal and have a drink? And I've realized over time that that is just not my normal. And that's something that I can't invite in, right? Even taking like a sleep aid, like a Tylenol PM, oh God, I'll just be hung over for days. Because there's this sense of exhaustion that happens when you're allowing so much stimulus in. And so adding a depressant on top of that actually downgrades my ability to function well as an empath or an intuitive. Okay, let me just pause for a moment. Think about one or two other things that might be helpful.
I think it's valuable to reiterate the point of, you know, I was even reluctant to do this podcast, but I thought it was so poignant at the beginning of Virgo season. Virgo ruled by Mercury, right? So hearing the unspoken, hearing the wordless speech and being a part of that as a listener, a meditator, an empath, it felt needed. Um, But I don't often call myself an empath or a highly sensitive person or an intuitive in public. I think that the way in which you carry yourself can speak for itself in the unspoken and spoken space and setting yourself up for success in ways that you can let those skills speak for themselves and really let them shine. And that's why I brought up the teaching in public and the yoga environment, because it really wasn't suited for who I am and how I actually want to share the teachings of yoga. And so I think that's important to, one, learn that you are, two, keep it keep it to yourself, you know, and really work with it, really work with how it shows up in your life. You know, I gave you some personal examples, some of them will fit and a lot of them won't fit. And you'll have to figure out what it's like to hold your own meta and then all these other messages coming through. Again, holding up my left hand, right? See, so you'll develop your own embodiment technique to actually cope with that level of self-sensory stimulation and auric field access what it boils down to and then ways to sort of protect yourself is they get they're really tactful it's not just like drawing a white light around you as you enter public like um, I love high-waisted jeans because it really it really protects my solar plexus and my second chakra right that's something that I found over time is actually a valuable technique for me I don't feel as vulnerable and I don't feel as open because I actually have a physical sense of containment there. Um, Wearing a beanie, really valuable. Um, You know, so in the summer I wear like a hat or like a baseball hat and then in the winter a beanie. Try to do that as much in public as possible. And then verbal contact with people that you're with, you know, and letting them know, like, I see a friend in the grocery store, but I'm super engaged in my own meta. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. You know, the COVID elbow bump, and then we're on our way. And a moment where I'm saying, okay, you know, wow, it was really great to see her in public, and now we're moving on. And there is a a deliberate separation there, or I just get right back into my own meta. I don't even always have to say that out loud. That's really helpful. In terms of screen time and social media and cutting down on those things so you're not absorbing, right? So even if I'm just like shooting someone off an email or they enter my space in a non-physical way, right? I think that there is something needs to be some acknowledgement there that even in the virtual space, we are intertwining auric fields and You want to know how much you're taking in that isn't actually your dreams, your desires and the way that you're organized. And if it's dampening your connection to your dreams, your desires and how you're organized. And when you're in burnout or overload, right, reducing the screen time, reducing the access to people's auric fields in a physical way, taking on less clients. I also had someone the other day who's a nutritionist and like, hey, it's okay to take three three months off of being in service to other people and absorbing other people's energy. If you can financially, you want to build that in. 
so that you actually have access to get back into your own meta, right? Sometimes it can take three minutes. But honestly, after transitory nature, I would say it almost took me six to eight months to, because the writing process for me, right? I wrote that book to be read. I didn't write that book for me. So here I am constantly tuning into other people's fields to write. How would they see it? What would they say? What, what, how would they process? What's the best set, set of questions to ask in a Socratic way to open that sense of transformation for someone else, right? So even by yourself, as an empath, you can be in deep contact with other people and knowing when to reduce that stimulus and actually taking that time away from those energy currents, really valuable. Even inside my nuclear family unit, right? Got invited to a concert last week, knew I had a full day of sessions. Of course, I thought it would be super fun to hang out with my family, but I had to say no. Hey, nope, I got a full day of connect. I'm going to be really overwhelmed and exhausted. I can't walk into another environment of crazy stimulus. So I hope that's also really reiterating sort of the responsibility it takes to contain your own energy and to honestly keep yourself in the flow of your own well-being as an empath or intuitive or a highly sensitive person. Okay, great. So I think that might be an organic stopping point. So you're really using this 30-day period. Today is the first day of Virgo season of self-reflection, self-devotion, and really understanding your own meta-dialogue, right? Meta-attention is kind of one step up from meta-dialogue. It's watching down on the meta-dialogue or sideways or upward, you know, no hierarchy here in terms of what's important and what's not important. But meta-attention is this vast understanding of your meta-dialogue. So obviously you have a voice talking to you in your head 24-7. God bless that little thing, right? Has many personalities. It's all over the goddamn place, right? That is really your cognitive function. That is your language function. That is that tiny little millisecond gap between sensory perception and then actually speaking to yourself how you're perceiving. Meta-dialogue is one step above and that actually is the things that aren't coming through language function. So it's how you feel, how you sense. You know, I often hear things that aren't in language, and then I have to pull them down into language function so I can communicate them. That's where that little gap is when you're trying to explain like a psychedelic experience. It's a felt spiritual experience. It can't fit into the confinement of language. We can obviously do the best we can making that happen. And as an empath and a practitioner of astrology and yoga that works with clients, I have to do that in the most responsible way that I possibly can. So often, this is a sidebar, you're going to hear how other people talk if you can really get into their meta through your em empathetic ways. And you'll use that language to communicate with them, not how you talk to yourself. So meta dialogue is the space between those words that made me feel icky, that made me have anxiety. Whoa, if I keep hearing that, it's going to weigh down on my head like a fucking huge cloud that's going to ruin my next year. Quit that. That is so ridiculous in between that you're responding with such intensity. Oh, there must be judgment there because I'm responding with such intensity. 
is can I figure out the difference between judgment and discernment outside of language function in the way I hold my body, in the way I move through the world, in the way that I connect with others, right? So this is a big description of what meta dialogue actually feels and sounds like. It's kind of like the slow sludge that happens in between that quick chatter that's always going on in your mind, your chitta, double T, meaning like all the ways that you're sort of talking to yourself. And then above that is the meta dialogue in, in totality. And then even above that is your meta attention. And it is the thing that tunes, attunes to other people. And it can open like a funnel almost and allow other information to come in. So obviously, if we don't know the next step down, our meta dialogue and all the ways that it functions, and honestly, these aren't pretty things. Like I have a bunch of tells in my meta dialogue. If I go too end, too far to one end of the spectrum or too far to the other end of the spectrum, I've got a little bit of an imbalance happening. And you can hear that in the meta dialogue. Underneath that is your language function. So obviously, meta dialogue and language function work side by side, but we really need to know that well in order to open the meta attention like a funnel. Okay, yeah, I could probably go on about this forever. This is something especially in the last decade that I've worked diligently with and being nomadic and changing environments so much and then finally finding Taos because there is a connection to land that creates a sense of stability in the meta attention. It creates a sense of stability in the central nervous system and, you know, can definitely see that in people's astrology, which is very helpful but that's unique to each and every one of us of what sort of connection to earth creates stability in the central nervous system. Okay, so that's where I'm going to leave you for the empath, highly sensitive person, intuitive conversation, right? Staying healthy, keeping prerequisites in your field, and then setting yourself up in the con life context and professional context of how to actually use these skills. Because if we're using them 24-7 and the door is wide open, it's going to cause this sort of lethargy, heaviness, depression, um, refusal of self. There isn't a lot of self-worth growing there because we're mixing with other people's fields so much. So... Great. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning into the Rhizocast this week, today, sort of. I'm going to re record a few this week. So please look out for those and looking forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for listening to the Rhizocast. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Rhizocast. If you love this episode, please download, subscribe, share it, and pass it along to a friend. Please subscribe to our Rizo Magazine subscription at www.rizomagazine.com. You can find Sue Hunt's work, your host, at www.suehunt.com. We love bringing you these in-depth conversations. Please remember the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as actionable advice. This podcast is a resource for general information, education, and artistic inspiration. Rizo is not liable for your decisions to implement information from this podcast.